You are listening to As a Woman, episode 42, A Doctor Gets Breast Cancer, an interview with Dr. Meadow Good. Meadow's a friend of mine. She was my senior resident in OBGYN residency at Parkland Hospital. She's a urogynecologist and a mom. And now part of her story includes breast cancer. This is personal and raw, and I'm so thankful that Meadow agreed to share her story with you to increase awareness and encourage you to do something about it. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. This episode is really important to me. A doctor gets breast cancer, and this is Meadow's story. Dr. Meadow Good is our guest today, and I'm so honored to have her on here. She is a board-certified OBGYN and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon. She completed her residency and fellowship at UT Southwestern, and she is the chief of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery and the quality officer for gynecology in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Good has been recognized nationally as an outstanding leader in women's health. She's been on ACOG forever. She's always been an advocate for social media. She was a mentor and an educator of me, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer while breastfeeding her second baby, and her story has touched so many of us because this could be any of us. Your life could be changed in a single moment. You may have dreams and ambitions and aspirations, that you work years for, and suddenly everything is different. You have a new perspective and a new outlook on life. Meadow is sharing her story in a really raw time. She was only diagnosed 10 months ago. In that time period, she's undergone surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And she is still not out of the woods of this treatment, but she's coming on here to tell you her story so that we can all learn and be inspired from what she's gone through. And I'm just so honored and excited to be able to talk to her and to share her journey with you. So here we go. Hi, everybody. I am so excited to have Dr. Meadow Good on the podcast today. She is going to be sharing her story and I'm just going to jump right in. Meadow, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share my story and I'm excited to be with you. Yay. I also feel like this is a huge blast from the past. So it just it makes me so happy to see your face. Uh-huh. And I'm going to start by telling everybody that you were my senior resident in residency. So we were residents together. And I really remember doing my first gynecology month. So my gen month with you. And you were the third year. And I think Tiffany Bogan or somebody was right above us. But that was our little team. And as an intern, I was really nervous for GYN because I'd done emergency medicine and I felt good with procedures and diagnosis, but I hadn't been in the OR for about two years. So I was pretty nervous about operating and getting in the OR. And you were so hard in the best kind of way. You always had this really optimistic outlook, but it was, you're not going to touch my patient until you know your stuff. So I so (laughs) remember you like quizzing me all the time on anatomy and steps to surgeries and that type of stuff. And that stuck with me. And I even taught other residents that way too. So I just want to say, I've always loved your very meticulous approach to medicine and that patient care was so super important that it really rubbed off on me and how I practice today. So love you. Thank you, Meadow, always for that. 
Love you. And thank you. Thanks for being a fantastic intern. Oh my gosh. Those are the days. Long time ago. Yeah, You kind of don't realize when you're in the midst of residency how much you're going to look back at that time period fondly for the relationships and friendships you make. Don't you think? Absolutely. And I mean, we went to one of the biggest programs in the country, actually the biggest program in the country. And one of the questions I get all the time, because um, I teach at a residency program now, is how did you, did you even know them? Did you even know your classmates or the people above and below you? And I said, absolutely. Actually, a lot of the times, like you said, we were in teams. So there was always like four of us together for a whole month. And like, you really got to know that person really, really well, maybe more than you wanted to. Um, but you celebrated with them. You had good days with them. You had bad days with them. You took care of some really interesting and sick people. Um, and the bonds that we forged are for our life. Oh, so strong, right? Because I don't think... We always talk about the bad stuff of residency, the crazy work hours and the lifestyle, and you're going to miss things. But I don't think people really talk about how at no other point of your life do you get such an intense focus on something you're passionate about with a group of people who feel similarly and you create these bonds that are going to last forever. That, that is absolutely true. The um, discussion in the lounge together or in the locker room together it's a different discussion. It's, you know, we want to know how each other's day was and we want to know what you did last night or what you had for dinner or breakfast and what are you up to? And, but the other conversation is that you have a deep love for taking care of women and their families and that bond and trying to learn from each other. Hey, what did you prescribe for this? Or how do you do this and teach me this technique? And like, that's a different, it's a different conversation. You, I will never have with another mom at the park, you know, right. it's just not the way it is. Yeah. Nobody understands kind of what your life and what you've been through and that we get started at everything a little bit later than some of our peers who are not in medicine for the most part. Did yeah. you, did you always know you were going to be a doctor? Was that always your path from when you were younger? Will you tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine and how sure. you ended up in OBGYN? Yeah. So actually, um, one of my best friends from college lives down the street from me here. And, um, after I get, got sick, her and her family have been instrumental in supporting me and my children. And she has three children and they're always at our house and we go back and forth. And it's just a great relationship. But she reminds me early, early on when we first met in college, I, she said, you know, when we're all out trying to figure out what we're doing with ourselves just on a daily basis, I said to her, I wanted to be a woman's healthcare provider. And I said, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. Good job. Like, really? I said those, she's like, those exact words. And I was like, huh. I think I've always, um, I've been an athlete, uh, a martial artist, and um, I was not always uh, around women. There was a few really rock star women in my life, but um, there was a lot of men. And so I became interested in helping women and the women who succeed in, as athletes or the women who succeed in their lives and helping other women succeed. And so it just became natural to me that I wanted to help women and families. And um, I was always curious about obstetrics and gynecology. And I remember driving a friend to Planned Parenthood in high school to get condoms. You know, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. You have a boyfriend and you're gonna, you're thinking about doing something. Let's get in the car and let's go. And yeah. we didn't even think twice. You know, I drove her there and we went together. And um, it was just kind of how I was raised. You, you help out your friends and you educate yourself and you educate other people. And it's kind of stuck with me. 
So all through undergrad, that's kind of was my aim. Um, I didn't know exactly where I was going to go, but I ended up um, heading out west to Arizona and um, went to Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. And uh, it just kind of was serendipitous. I went out there and um, was really the only medical school I applied to, got in, and it was a lovely program. It was, it was the really only place you applied? <laughs> yeah. What, what, why? That seems so that unlike Meadow. I don't... That's a crazy story, but I ended up following a boy to Arizona. Gotcha. And, and um, you know, and that's kind of pat, paved the way for my future. But um, in medical school, I ended up meeting some amazing mentors and amazing people who um, shared same, similar interests with me. And at that time, I thought it, I wanted to be a high-risk obstetrical uh, provider. Uh, turns out... Um, after going to Parkland, uh, not enough for a lifetime. (laughs) No, thank you. I do not want to do OB ever again. Um, no, I love pregnant women. I love, um, taking care of women. I loved all of that, but really what I found was my love was in the operating room and I loved being able to create with my hands and it brought back, you know, I had trained in martial arts since I was a little girl. And being able to do things with my mind and my hands and the hand-eye coordination that I developed and the love for creating and being in my own zone was directly transmitted to the operating room. And um, I love people too. So it's a social atmosphere as well, which a lot of people don't know. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, you scrub with the same people, they become your family and your team, which includes usually medical students, residents, yourself, your partner, your, you know, all the scrub techs, all the nurses, the anesthesiologists, you all get to know each other very, very well. And um, as I, I, I said once, I'm like, it's, it's like a really refined dance. You begin to work with people and you don't even sometimes have to even say anything. They know right. what you're You just doing. know what you're doing. It's the, that's the best synergy when you're in the OR like that. Little did I know that there was a whole field on that. Yeah. And so I quickly um, found the urogynecologist at our program and started to kind of follow them around and see what they did and, um, and wanted to see what they, what their passions were. And, you know, and they were really amazing surgeons and really amazing people. And um, I just kind of fell in step with them. And it was, it was a fantastic learning experience. And that's the same kind of learning experience I tried to give the OBGYN residents where I'm at is to see, let them see what it's really like to be a urogynecologist day in, day out and help women with the most sensitive issues. Um, I feel like we talk all day long about, I joke and say, sex, pee, poop. And um, instead of sex, now I've called it practicing procreation. So the three Ps. <laughs> but don't you think that... There's so much stigma in women's health in general, especially as you start to narrow in into your field, into Eurogen. People are not really open about talking about sexual dysfunction, talking about bowel and bladder issues. I mean, this stuff is not what women are talking about. And so they're suffering in silence. And don't you see that every day in your clinic? Absolutely. Um, in my clinic, at the park with other mothers, wow. at the, you know... Um, any kind of social gathering, it's, it is, and I'll sometimes kind of get somebody who, you know, kind of brings me aside and says, Hey, I, I, I want, wanting to ask you, um, I think it's normal because, you know, I've had three kids and when I tell them really nothing, that's not the usual, you know, you're having normal bowel movements, normal urination and a sex life that's happy and healthy. Other than that, that's not normal. So if you're leaking when you're jogging or can't jump on the trampoline 
or you can't run after your kids. You're afraid if you run after your kids who's darting into traffic that you're going to pee on yourself. Those aren't normal things. Pain with sex is not normal. But somehow our culture, we don't talk about it. Mothers aren't talking to her daughters. You wouldn't believe how many people have never heard of a kegel and don't know how to contract their pelvic floor muscles. I mean, it's amazing to me because I've learned about it at such a young age. But now going back, women in their 20s, nobody knows what kegels are. Yeah. And we talking about menstruation and kegels and normal, normal um, functions of our bodies early on. I totally yes. I always say that we don't talk about what's normal. How do you know what's not normal? So exactly. when it comes to the period, I feel like I talk about the menstrual cycle every day and women's eyes get bright and they're like, I've never been told this or never understood my body in this way. And right. Have no idea. And I think this is just a huge disservice to women in general that we feel like this these things make people uncomfortable so we don't talk about them. And then we have no reference point for what we're struggling with leaking urine or stool is totally abnormal and there's things you can do about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. One example was a woman I had when I first moved here, she had pelvic organ prolapse, which is when um, I always like to talk about the vagina being the shape of a tube sock. And so (laughs) I think I've heard you say this before. (laughs) So the top of the tube sock where your toes go is where the cervix is. And on top of that is the uterus. And so I show my patients sometimes, I'll even take my shoe off and show them my sock and say, okay, your vagina is kind of the shape of a sock. And when it's not where it's supposed to be, it turns inside out. Like when you're folding your socks and putting them in a drawer and it kind of clicks a little bit like, oh, so I had this woman, she was a lovely, lovely woman. And um, she had been wearing skirts for the last 10 years. And only, I mean, she looked lovely in a skirt, but she learned to walk around her prolapse. So her prolapse was completely inside out. That's terrible. Yes. So she had stage four complete uterovaginal prolapse, which is also called prosthodentia. And um, she had learned and she could walk normally, but she had learned to walk with the prolapse hanging out and wear a skirt. And um, the fact that we could change her life so instantaneously in our office, first with a pessary, and then later on with surgery, it was like that. I went home and I like celebrated because that's what my life is supposed to, that was what it is about. Helping yeah. women right then. I helped her prolapse and then later on we fixed it. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. 
I love Ritual and I love taking their Essential for Women 18 plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients and they have industry leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a caraway for every cook. Their internet-famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. You changed her whole life, something that she was dealing with and wasn't getting help for and just suffering with. You changed all of that. And I think that is very empowering to other women too, saying, hey, you don't have to put up with this. But I'll be really honest, even as an OBGYN resident, I didn't really know that urogynecology existed or that it was its own field, let alone a super competitive specialty, experts on anatomy, amazing surgical stuff. How do you explain your field to somebody who's never heard about it? What would you say you know, is bread and butter or what all you do as a urogynecologist? Sure. So first of all, it is, one of the, it is the newest um, OBGYN subspecialty. And we are board certified. So yeah, (laughs) I I know I'm like, I was really excited when I got to take another step of boards. Um, But yes, we take a written and an oral board, just like for our generals. Then we take another one after a fellowship. But at this point, it's a different ball game. It's like, I want to prove to you, this is what I'm doing every day. And I know it backwards and forwards. Don't get me wrong. It's super high stress, but it is really um, about showing your love for the field and that you're a safe and competent practitioner. Um, but F, we call it FPMRS, Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery. And you can get there two ways. You can get there via OBGYN, and that's four years, and then three years of an FPMRS fellowship. And we call ourselves urogynecologists. And then, or you can get there from a urology tract. So you can do five years in urology, two years FPMRS subspecialty, and then you end up with the same board certification. So they learn upper tract, they learn kidneys and ureters and all this stuff, bread and that's their bread and butter. Our bread and butter as gynecologists is the reproductive tract and doing hysterectomies and things like that. So three years additional training all was spent on learning what the urologists learned too, which is repairing ureters and bladders and learning that anatomy really well. 
but our bread and butter is pelvic organ prolapse, um, urinary incontinence, accidental bowel leakage, also fecal incontinence. Um, and then um, in between all of that, we learn about sexual dysfunction, pelvic floor dysfunction. We learn how to evaluate the pelvic floor. We learn how to teach people about the pelvic floor. We do vulvodynia. We do vulvar care. We do um, everything that you can think of that has to do with the pelvic anatomy that's not related to mm. having a baby or um, you know trying to get pregnant or having fibroids or endometriosis. Those types of things we leave to all of you experts. <laughs> Um, but we, we like to pride ourselves on helping women. And I say mostly in the second half of their life, cause that's really when it starts to affect people when they lose their estrogen and become menopausal, but it doesn't have to be then it can be right immediately after having a baby. We'll see women postpartum or in the months following postpartum and try to help them get back to a healthy, um, place in their life. Uh, but yeah, so urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, sexual dysfunction, we deal with pelvic pain, all of those types of things. And you wouldn't believe how many of these women benefit from having a pelvic floor evaluation and just teaching them the right way to do a kegel and to relax, to yeah. relax their pelvic floor. A lot of people have been teaching themselves their whole life to do a kegel and don't do it while you're on the toilet. Don't mm-hmm. do it while you're voiding or trying to defecate because that's teaching yourself to contract when you should be relaxing. That's what most people do though, don't you think? Yes, I think that's what... We have told our daughters, um, unfortunately, and that's not a good thing to teach them because um, although you can stop the stream of urine, you don't want to stop the stream of urine. You want to relax and enjoy letting everything out. So when you do a Kegel, it should be purposefully. And for instance, if you're going to go pick up something heavy, just like you, everybody knows to strengthen your core and, and engage your abdominal muscles, you should also be engaging your pelvic floor. So if you're going to pick up your one-year-old off the floor, those muscles need to be engaged. If you're going to pick up those grocery bags, same thing, engage the pelvic floor. Also, my pelvic floor physical therapist, which we have one in our clinic, and she is amazing. Um, She's a doctor, board-certified doctor of physical therapy. Um, She sits up straight all day long, and she says it's like pretending you have a string that connects your head up to the ceiling, so you have to sit straight. And that all also engages the core and the pelvic floor the whole time. And so when, every time I see her, I automatically like yeah. sit up straight. <laughs> I'm suddenly now sitting up really straight while we were exactly. podcast. Like, engage the core, engage the pelvic floor. But we just, we haven't taught ourselves as a society when to relax and when to engage those pelvic floor muscles. And it can be good for sex. It can be good for lots of things. So if we take, yeah, if we take a timeout and say, okay, public service announcement about Kegels that you would like every woman who's sexually active or not to know, well, how would you tell all these women listening to this episode? I would say, make sure you know how to do one. And if you do, make sure you know how to do one correctly. And you can get, you can go to a public floor physical therapist without a referral a lot of times or with a referral from your OBGYN. And it is completely um, promoted. And we, we like that. We want you to go. We want you to know your anatomy and know your pelvic floor. So one quick way to maybe know if you can do a pelvic uh, floor contraction or a kegel is you can stick a finger inside the vagina. If you can contract your finger, contract your muscle around your finger and feel a lift, then you know you're in, in, in able to contract your pelvic floor muscles. So yeah, if you put your finger in your vagina and contract your pelvic floor muscles, you should be able to feel a lift. Um, and then sometimes if you want to take a mirror down there, you'll see your anal uh, anus pucker and pull up and in if you can contract your pelvic floor muscles. But a lot of people think it's with your face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all my patients I see, I'm like, okay, 
now you're going to show me it's a, it's test time. Can you do a kegel? And they really like squinch their face really hard. <laughs> and I mean, like, and then I have my finger, one finger in the vagina and nothing's happening, but their face is like really working it. <laughs> 10 for effort. But unfortunately you don't know how to work your pelvic floor muscles. So and I t- yeah. Don't you want to tell women also that, the female body, this this is normal. Your anatomy is not something to be ashamed of. Absolutely. And looking at it in a mirror or putting a finger in your vagina, these are not things yeah. to be afraid or scared of. Don't you see there's a lot of stigma for Absolutely. some women? I mean, it's also cultural. Some women have never used a tampon. I get it. Mm-hmm. Some people don't feel um, comfortable looking down there or feeling down there. But you never know what's abnormal if you don't know what your normal body looks like. And that's... A huge thing. It's so true. We have three holes. A lot of people don't even know that. Yeah. Your, your vagina, your anus, you're supposed to have three holes. And your vagina, it's not an empty hole. There's you can't never put something up there and it's gonna go into your abdominal cavity. And people sometimes think that they're afraid to put a tampon or a pessary or something in there, thinking it's gonna get lost. So the good news is is that your finger almost always can reach the all the way to the top of the vaginal cavity. So you shouldn't be afraid of checking it out, exploring it. And that's how you know what feels good and what doesn't feel good. So sex is a huge part. Um, We're animals. We are designed to eat, pee, poop, have sex, relax, have children. That's about it. Um, All the rest of this stuff that we do supertentorial is amazing, but that's not what we're designed to do. So sex is a huge part of who we are as people, as women. And if you're not having a good sex life and you're dreading it and it's painful and you don't even know what's going on and you can't help those muscles or relax. I mean, you're doing yourself a disservice. You, this is what life is about is having a good time inside the bedroom, outside the bedroom. So, and that's what we're here for. And that's why I love my job because I get to talk about all the sensitive, fun topics with people all the time. And I feel like even a little bit makes a huge difference. I want to switch gears for a minute because as a woman in medicine, you are in a very competitive field. You worked your butt off to get there. I'm so impressed by all you do and your passion for educating women. When did you decide to start a family and how did that play into this journey in medicine? Sure. So that's not an easy time or an easy topic for anybody who's a woman in general who has a career. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no right, perfect time for anybody. And you hear that a lot if you ask your mentors who are women, hey, when should I start a family? Or even men, because men also have to sacrifice things uh, to have a family in medicine or any career. Um, there's never a perfect time, but it is true. Uh, one in four physicians who are women will have infertility. And it's because we put it off for so long. Um, and also all the other biological reasons why women can't have children. So um, I have, I assure you, you know, and I know we know lots of people uh, throughout residency, fellowship and beyond who are going through infertility training, Mm -hmm. I mean, infertility uh, treatments, uh, yeah. Treatments. So um, I'm st- I still have chemo brain and you're rocking it, girl. Brain. So you know. Um, but anyways, yes. Yeah, so um, I unfortunately I'm I'm another statistic. I'm one of those four women who uh, one out of the four women who get infer- who have infertility. Me too. So here we are, hundred percent right here. And um, I'm I was with all the women who feel the doom and gloom and think that they're never going to have children. And you know, there was a time in my life I thought, why am I? Why did I do all of this if I can't even have? a family. And, um, you know, I really was stressed out about it and I, my age was starting to creep up and I thought, okay, you know, um, what's my plan B? 
what am I going to do if I can't have my own biological children? Mm-hmm. You know, will I adopt? Will I, you know, try a surrogate? What, what, what can I do? Um, but yeah, I, I found an expert and, um, she is amazing. And to be honest, this woman came into my life very early on in my life. Um, she was a resident when I was a medical student in Arizona. Look at that. And I know. And so I went back to her. She's an amazing reproductive endocrinologist in Dallas. And she was everything I needed at that time. Caring, compassionate, understood where I was, what I was going through. And she walked me through the steps, me and my husband both. And, um, you know, we're really lucky because it was successful and we have two beautiful children out of it. But there was definitely a time when I thought, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm not going to have my own children. And that, and that would have been a really hard thing for me to deal with. Um, but I, I, I know that lots of women have the alternative where they don't, it's not successful and they do end up doing something else and that's okay too. Um, but yes, I had, I had IVF twice and, um, both times I was asking even, I said, okay, what's the next step while she put the one embryo in that looked kind of good, you know, like not anything fantastic. Um, it wasn't like, oh yeah, this is a winner for sure. I said, okay, what's the next step? When do I call you next? You're and a planner, Meadow. I, yes. <laughs> if you've ever met one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're planners. But, um, you know, I, it, I, it was both time was meant to be. Um, my children were both of those for those one embryos that thankfully stuck. And um, I couldn't be more appreciative of what you do, of what people like yourselves do and are experts in this area because we um, we need you. And we're so happy that you help us have kids. Oh, I love you. It's such a hard thing to go through. It's so hard to go through as a physician too. I really think you hit the nail on the head. You've dedicated your life to helping women and educating them. And then suddenly you feel really behind the game when you're ready to have your own family and you're thrust into the unknown even though you know more than a lot of people. And it's a very scary place. And it really makes you doubt some of your past decisions where we can sit here right now and say, hey, no, it all worked out. In the moment, it's really crippling to some. Absolutely. And I and know... obstetrician gynecologist, you know, I'm walking around my ward and there are babies crying all the all time. time. And, you know, and you see these newborn babies and you're like, oh gosh. You know, and nobody knows that you're suffering. Nobody knows that you really want that baby. You really want to be pregnant. Um, and that was really hard. And I, but it also made me appreciate life and appreciate the babies that were there. And um, I, I feel like I could bond with people because it's, it was such a strong desire of mine. These women are having babies and they're letting me into their lives before, during, and after. It was really, um, you know, that's a very important lesson to appreciate life. And unfortunately I have to learn that lesson over and over these days, but, um, definitely during that time I learned it and now I'm even more appreciative of it. You posted an Instagram post recently that was very impactful and really resonated about how you feel like you've been living life in 10 month increments. And I know this kind of goes into where you were in pregnancy and postpartum and getting diagnosed and undergoing treatment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you found out you had breast cancer and what that was like? Sure. So like you you just found out, I did have infertility treatment. And you know I kept that kind of a secret. Um, 
I, I pride myself at work at being a professional and I didn't want people to think I wasn't able to do my job because I was going through something else at the time. And, um, you know, I tried to put on my best game face all the time, but Mm -hmm. meanwhile, I'm every day racing home to stick myself in the belly with a shot and think about taking my vitamins. And, um, you know, there's a lot, uh, was a lot going on. Scheduling your OR cases around your egg retrieval possible day. It's a lot. It's a lot. And ultrasounds. I mean, you guys got to look in the eggs, like how many times? My God. All the time. All the time. We love the Like, uh, so I actually ended up taking, you know, some time off. Uh, I'd save my vacation. So I could go and get the egg retrieval and all of that. So I, I you know, I tried to, I, I even planned that, you know, I had to plan everything. Um, so I was, you know, pregnant with my baby and, um, you know, I felt a lump and I didn't really, we didn't really think it was anything. Uh, you know, women have fibrocystic changes, um, breasts are lumpy, bumpy and super um, engorged and big when they're pregnant. I had breastfed my first baby for 20 months and that in and of itself could be a whole podcast about women in medicine, breastfeeding women in career place. Oh my God. It's like the hardest thing ever. I just can't believe you just said 20 months. You just like went up the chain in my book because it is so hard. I mean, to pump and obsess yeah. about ounces and supply and scheduling out time to do it. It is oh, really yeah. tough. And I would get mad sometimes. I'd run home with like a full, after a full day of OR with full boobs and they had just fed the baby because they didn't know when I was going to get home. And I was like, ah, give me that. And I, I remember I'd start having a letdown and I'd like, just put him on it. Just put him on. And like, he would be like, no, I don't want any more. <laughs> I'm full, mama. Full. <laughs> I'm like, you're going to eat right now. Um, so yeah, 20 months of breastfeeding and then um, weaned him and ended up having a miscarriage actually mm-hmm. in between those two pregnancies. And that was hard. Um, yeah. I was work that day too. And um, so I had a miscarriage, ended up having to get a DNC because I was hemorrhaging. Oh God, it gets worse. It gets worse. And so then I went back, had another IVF cycle. It worked. Having lumpy, bumpy breasts, felt something, you know, but just kept thinking, everybody kept thinking, it's just fibrocystic changes. Women our age don't get breast cancer. And um, lo and behold, uh, postpartum, I'm examining myself all the time. And I start feeling something and everybody, I, it, it's just, it was hard. Everybody I talked to like in the hallway or whatever, they're no like, big deal. Going, squeeze it harder. You got clogged ducts. And, you know, it was everybody, and I would, I would pump in the faculty OR lounge <laughs> in between my cases and leave it going so that it would air out. So I wouldn't get mold in my tubes. Mm-hmm. And so everybody in the faculty lounge knew you were pumping. I was pumping, knew I had a baby. And, um, I would cover up with like a little apron, like a little nursing apron and I'd pump and chart at the same time while I was getting ready for my next case. And so, um, I just started feeling it and then I started feeling it in my armpit and that's what alarmed me. And I said, something's not right. I don't care what anybody says. I gotta do something and, um, got in for imaging. And even at that time it was kind of a stretch, like, well, it could just be from breastfeeding you know, a lot of people want to wait until after you're done breastfeeding. And I was like, no, we got to do it. Everybody, you know, just, I'm paranoid. Just image just me. make me feel better. Make me feel better. We don't have to tell anybody, you know? So um, that was a good lesson because a lot of, I met a lot of women who had breast cancer during pregnancy, postpartum, before pregnancy. It can happen at 
any age. I've seen 20 year olds with breast cancer. Yes, I have too. I've we've frozen their eggs and every I mean, I've seen more breast cancer in the late twenties and early thirties than I really thought would be possible. It's just it impacts so many women. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. How old were you when you were diagnosed? So I was 39 years old. My baby was nine months postpartum. I was nine months postpartum. He was nine months old and um, I got a ruptured appendicitis. I was sick, thought I had a GI bug like everybody else at the time in January. And um, when I was super sick, I said to my husband, I need to go to the emergency room just for some fluids. Again, I was worried about the breast milk because I'm dehydrated. I need to make more breast milk. It's all about the breast milk. It so is. So I went in and um, ER doctors, you're amazing because I was all concerned about, give me fluids. I'm getting out of here. I got to go to work. And they examined me and they got imaging like they should have. And they, that's why I leave it up to them. They're the experts. And lo and behold, they're like, we think you have an appendicitis. I'm like, what? And it's amazing. I, I don't follow the textbook. I didn't have a white count. I didn't have a fever. And if you know me, I have a lot of energy, so I didn't look sick. Right. Um, so they were pretty puzzled. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't really know. Probably it's really early. And the surgery um, consult came down and we're buddies from the OR. I'm like, ah, yeah, I probably don't have anything, but you know. And he convinced me, let's just take it out. Otherwise, you're going to be back. He put a camera in my belly button, laparoscopy. And um, when I woke up, he liked to tell me that my body, my belly was full of pus. Oh, so gross. (laughs) So I was sick. And um, even then I didn't recognize the signs of how sick I was. And probably that could have killed me. So I'm really, I'm thankful for him. He gave me amazing treatment. I'm thankful for the surgery team, the residents. Everybody was wonderful. Um, it took me a few days to bounce back. I had horrible irritation in my peritoneal lining. My belly was um, very irritated for almost two weeks. So I had to take a couple of days off from work. I said, you know what? I'm starting to think I need to check out what's going on in my armpit. And I never... I'm off work, I'll just yeah. go check out the armpit situation. Check it out. And um, I was like, you know, there's no way this is cancer. I mean, I didn't even cross anybody's mind And even the radiologist sitting across from me was like, you know what? We don't, this isn't, you know, it's probably inflammatory. You're breastfeeding and it's going to be really hard to see. So we were both very shocked at the ultrasound uh, findings when she looked. And um, at first the lymph nodes, they looked, you know, big, but they didn't look like, oh my gosh, this is cancerous. And then when she rolled the ultrasound probe over my breast and saw a pretty big mass, uh, we both were like, oh my gosh. And I had been even secretive about getting the mammogram that day. I didn't even tell my husband. Um, he dropped me off, thought I was getting my belly checked. <laughs> oh, man. So but thankfully, my mom was here and my husband came and they held my hand while they biopsied it and found they out. They biopsied it just right. They saw a mask and they said, we got to biopsy this today. They biopsied it right away, which I'm so thankful for the quick turnaround. Um, you know, at my job, University of Florida, they, they took care of me and the diagnosis was amazing. University of Florida, Jacksonville, uh, they were wonderful. 
and she held my hand and she called me and we talked and, um, right away I knew this wasn't good because it was in my lymph nodes. And so we started planning and trying to figure out what do I do? Um, and you know, it's been a really hard time since then, but the diagnosis was rough. Um, the hardest thing that's ingrained in my memory, which thankfully will never be ingrained in my daughter's memory was weaning her yeah. from breast milk. That was the hardest thing for me. Cause I, and, and you also had this goal, right? You don't, you're already sad. You 20 months, right? We can do it and keep going. And then so you're shortening yeah. that experience with her because you have to, but yeah. that's hard. Yeah. And, you know, she didn't really know any difference. Um, she got a bottle during the day, but at night, every night we curled up together and, um, you know, I breastfed her as soon as I got home and we snuggled. And so we didn't really, I didn't think about the impact it was going to have on her and I's relationship because not only was she waiting for me every night to get home, but it was also that bonding, that snuggle time, that all of that. And the first PET scan, which is radioactive sugar in your vein, and it finds the cells that are like super rapidly, um, reproducing. That's how they detect cancer and find it in other places in the body, which is really hard when you're breastfeeding because your breasts are making lots of milk. Um, so the first thing was I had to have this PET scan done and they said, you can't hold or, you know, really touch your kids for 24 hours after. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. So I said, touching is a little extreme. So, you know, they won't understand that at all, but the holding so I basically locked myself in the bedroom and that my mom and my, de- my husband handled the kids because there was no way the baby and I couldn't. Yeah. You can't not hold a nine month old or whatever. Yeah. Right? So that was just devastating. And then it, every, my mom, my mom and I decided we, I needed to get off the breastfeeding right away. I couldn't, it was like a, it was like, <laughs> it was like an addiction. Like every day I'd see her and I was just like, one last time, one last time. And I just couldn't do it. So finally, it was like the night before chemo. I, that was the last time I breastfed her. How emotional is that? You know, really breastfeeding her for that last time and knowing it is and having chemo staring you in the face. I think that just, I can't imagine. I don't know. I don't want to say scary, but like a harder kind of emotional night than that must have been ending that journey with her and then starting this other journey right away, right? Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, 10 month increments being pregnant for 10 months. I was breastfeeding her for almost 10 months. And then this has been the 10 months of cancer treatment. These, these last 30 months have been a roller coaster uh, emotionally and physically on me. But yeah, I was so, and I was, it's good in one, one sense. I was so wrapped up in the breastfeeding and how am I going to transition that I wasn't as fearful about chemotherapy. So I went into chemo that day and my whole focus was like, oh my gosh, you know, my baby. And um, when you just stop breastfeeding cold turkey, you get engorged breasts. Yeah, it's terrible. It's horrible. I mean, I did everything, all the midwife tails, everything, cabbage leaves, you know, (laughs) every, I mean, seriously, we had frozen cabbage leaves. I was putting that on them. You know, I was walking around and luckily I was, I was binding myself really tightly and I was trying to stay away from my baby for many reasons but it was so hard. And then at night, you know, um, she was still waking up to nurse uh, yeah. a couple times at night. So 
my mom and my family, um, mostly my mom was amazing. Like I can't even ever imagine trying to prepare her for this, but she would wake up and feed the baby a bottle so that I didn't have to get up and, and be with her. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't physically or emotionally handle that, be there and not be able to give her what she really wanted and needed at that time. Yes. So hard. You went through, so where we're sitting right now, you've gone through chemo, and surgery and radiation. Is that the order we progress through things in? Yes. So because of my cancer being advanced, they do neoadjuvant chemo right away. Um, so everybody has a different algorithm depending on how advanced your cancer is. And, um, you know, it, it just, it all depends. So because my cancer was locally advanced, I went straight for the chemo. Uh, I got a port placed in my chest on the other side uh, of the chemo of the of the cancer, and then started chemotherapy right away. And um, I got what they called the red devil. So it was adriamycin and cyclophosphamide. Mm-hmm. They did that. They call it dose dense because they pack like I think three chemotherapy treatments into one, and you get it like every other week. Um, and so you get that every other week for several months and then you get Taxol, which is Plaxitaxel. Um, and then I got that one time dose dense and couldn't handle the side effects. And then I ended up getting the rest of them nine after that weekly. Okay. And just the side effect brutal from all of that. So I, hands down some, I've met a lot of strong women who are doing amazing things through chemo. And I, I can only imagine because it was very, very hard. And I was working still during all of that. It was really challenging. So you get, so you have your appendicitis, you get your ultrasound, there's a mass, you get a biopsy right away. You find out you have cancer. You went through, you know, chemo and then surgery and now radiation. And I think they've all probably been challenging in their different ways. What do you think are the different things that you've struggled with along the way? And how would you tell women, especially who want to support their friends or family or people who are going through this, how do you support somebody at the different stages of this journey from diagnosis and then different treatments? How can we support each other the best? That's a great question. You know, and people ask me early on, what can I do? What can I do? How can I support you? And at first I didn't know. Um, I never really needed this kind of help. And my husband and I both, you know, we were both very driven people and we thought we can handle this. You know, we've got this. And then pretty quickly into it, I realized we need all the help that people want to give us because, and there's nothing, there's no, our pride cannot be not taking people's help. So the best thing that people did for us was sent us um, food and sent us food gift cards. And um, we'd come home sometimes and there'd be a basket of fruit, bananas on our doorstep. And just not thinking about how you're going to feed your family, right? Taking that out of the equation. Taking that out of the equation was huge because on chemo days, we all morning, we got the kids ready and then we would pack up our stuff. And it was, you know, I iced my fingers and feet through uh, the Taxol. Um, and my mouth the whole time. So I'd get like Slurpees and we have to go to 7-Eleven on the way in. And Why do you have to do that? Because of like neuropathies or? Vet uh, neuropathy. Yes. There is not a lot of good studies, but it has been shown to help if you can constrict the blood vessels 
that it will prevent the chemo from getting to those um, extremities. So especially your tongue, your mouth, your feet and hands. So I would just... So maybe it can prevent n- permanent nerve damage in those areas if you're kind of constricting the blood vessels when you're getting or after the chemo. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yes. Fascinating. So yeah, so I, I was willing to do what, and as is every uh, chemo patient, whatever they said that possibly could help, I tried to do it. Um, of course, they give you a lot of medicine and make you very loopy, so... Being really good with keeping something in my mouth wasn't always the top priority. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely had my fair share of blisters in my mouth and, um, you know, had sores in my, in my, uh, lips and tongue, but my hands, I'm like, I'm a surgeon, I'm a doctor. I gotta do whatever I can to keep my hands as good as possible. The feet also weren't my top priority and they have a little more neuropathy now, but I, I iced my hands like nobody's business. Hands, 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 right? Hands, Yes. And my husband was like on his A-game with that. He would bring the cooler and the ice and that was his job. So in the mornings we were like totally, um, you know, just overwhelmed with getting the kids ready and getting myself ready and getting the chemo, getting there, you'd have to wait, wait for a bed, getting your bed. And the chemo would last anywhere from sometimes one hour all the way up to four hours, depending on what you're getting that day. And they have to pre-treat you, check your labs, make sure your labs are high enough. One time I got there, my labs were too low. My white count, my white blood cell count was too low to get chemo. But I don't know why they didn't know ahead of time. It was one of those days I escaped into the back and I was all in my bed and ready. And then they came in. They're like, we have some really bad news for you. You can't get chemo today. And I looked at my mom and I was like, Whoa! I know. <laughs> most, most cancer patients are like, no, 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 no. Give it to me anyways. I need it. And I'm like, all right, what are we doing today? I'm not like, getting chemo. Yeah, we have a free day. Enjoy free it. Day. So, um, yeah, we get home like four or five o'clock after all these appointments or chemotherapy. And the last thing we could do is trying to feed ourselves. So having food gift cards was amazing. We would just call Grubhub, any of those, um, and get a lot of takeout. It was That was the best. Um, and then frozen meals, people would drop off frozen meals. So I would say for support, number one is food. Number okay. two is showing up. People would take my kids. Somebody took my kids to um, the park. Somebody took my kids to a jump bounce house. Um, you know, my baby was really young, so she wasn't as easy to part with, but this, my son would go and he would, he would enjoy it. And he, and he needs some of that normalcy, just going to a park and that kind of stuff. He mentally, it's taken a little bit of a toll on him as well. Um, he's four years old. He's starting to make memories. So he really needed to have some really positive experiences. So people would take him food, money, um, you know, treatment is expensive and, um, you have to meet your out of pocket pocket deductible or all of the supplies needed, um, everything. It just And time. I think that's such a good point, right? Because everybody thinks, well, I have insurance or this person has insurance. So they're not thinking about that you've got these deductibles and so many of us have high deductible plans or the fact that there's time out of work too. And even if you're on disability or FMLA, it's not the same thing as working full-time. Right. So you're really financially being taxed in a different way that you're not planning on. And childcare, other things that you may need. Childcare, totally. Um, all of that. And nobody plans at 39 years old to get cancer. So it wasn't like we were saving for cancer. We had just had a family. We're you know, trying to live our lives. That's a huge... So, And all cancer patients have this. It's very hard, you know, trying to pay for everything. Uh, the supplies and medicine, childcare, food, it's, it just all adds up. And then time off from work. It's, it, yeah. you know, it's, 
it, um, you know, the money's not coming in. So that was hard. And then the other things that, that were really helpful were things that I didn't even, you know, know, but having some, some, I have a friend and she's so lovely and I would just love to say thank you to her. She sends me a card literally every single week. And just when I think she thinks I'm getting better, she, there's not going to be a card. I opened the mail yesterday and there's a card from her. Oh. So loving. And so what's her name? And Kelly Gershaw. She Kelly, we love you. Thank you, Kelly, for the cards. That is so sweet. Everybody go be Kelly. She is amazing. Every single week. And her kids write me cards and I show them to my kids. And I said, This is what it's like to support people. You're nice to them. You send them cards. And like that, the love that I've gotten from people, but the gifts that just sweet and useful. I got amazing a water bottle. Um you know, very helpful things, creams that I didn't know I needed until I needed it, like things like that. Um, and I, I've kind of made some lists to help people, um, figure this out because I was also, you know, asking every breast cancer patient, well, what about this? And what about that? And, and people have helped me along the way. So I've made a lot of lists on things that were helpful for me to help other people. Oh, you'll have to give the list so we can share it. So people could go and see, we could put it on the website for like Meadows List. If you have somebody in your life going through breast cancer, how you can help out. And hats. I never knew I needed a hat until I was cold and cold. What was it like losing your hair? Did you know you were going to lose your hair? Like you were well aware that was one of the side effects where you were like, maybe I'll get lucky and I won't. What was that like? Yes, I think all of that. Um, I heard you would lose your hair. I didn't, you know, you always think of the positive. So I'm like, maybe I will be that lucky person who doesn't. And um, there is a system where you can wear a cold, I call it a cold cap. So you put a cold cap on your head. Well, I was already cold, you know, making every other extremity cold. I was like, I'm not going to do yeah. my head. I don't have time for that. And it did, and it was a 50% chance it would work or not. I'm like, those odds aren't really in my favor. I'm just going to let my hair do what it does. So after the second treatment, I started showering and my hair was just coming out in clumps. So it was a really emotional day. My best friend, Michelle, came over that night and we sat on the back porch and she, she helped shave my head and I look over and then my husband and his father both have clippers and they're shaving their heads. Oh, I love that. And the hair is flying everywhere and we all looked like we had mange because <laughs> it was starting to get dark and the hair was just not even... Um, so we ended up getting a friend who was a barber to come over the next morning and kind of tidy our heads up because we looked horrible, but, um, it was a really emotional time. Um, my husband and his father were amazing and, and, you know, and rallied in support and also shaving their heads. It was just so heartbreaking. Um, but it was, it was, it was amazing. And I've had so much support in so many ways. And I just, that's, I mean, it's a perfect time to tell everybody, thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you to everybody. Um, really, we cancer patients, people with chronic illnesses can't get by by themselves. And it's never, it's, a shame, it's never a shameful to take help. And it's been amazing. And we really appreciate all the help we've gotten from people. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of you for sharing your story out loud because I do think there's a lot of stigma. And I think especially professional, hardworking women are raised, at least our generation and this mentality, I can do it all. I can do everything. Even like you talked about with your infertility journey, I don't need to show what I'm going through. We've got it together. And there's this pride component where we want to tell people, oh no, we don't need your help. And I know on a 
day-to-day basis in my life, my, my friends have to force in like, no, you're working. Let me get the balloons for the party. I mean, these little nuances that I always feel inclined to be like, no, no, I got it. I can do it. But I can only imagine that gets really amplified when you talk about something as big as cancer. And I think it's such a good point to tell everybody, accept people's help, right? And don't be prideful in that aspect of it. And that's so amazing that you've had such good support. And I'm so thankful to all of your people. So Meadows people, thank you so much. And I think to everybody who's going through it, that's really the theme is just showing up is meaningful. Even if you don't know what to do or what to say, just being there, right? Showing up and just not refuse, like saying, I'm going to help you. I have one friend, Anne. She's the sweetest. Anne showed up and she's just like, I was super sick. I got infected after my um, mastectomies. I had my bilateral mastectomies with tissue expanders because I wanted the fake boobs. Yeah. And um, who wouldn't? Um, some people don't, and that's cool too. Um, but I had tissue expanders and I got super infected. So I was on IV antibiotics and I had to give them myself for almost six weeks. Maybe. I mean, you were so not ready for that, right? You, yeah. I mean, you knew that was on the list of the risks when you sign up for it, but really think, you must think, what shitty odds do I have in one year to have like a ruptured appendix, get diagnosed with cancer, lose all my hair, and now have infection after my double mastectomy, right? Like, yeah. What is going yeah, on? It was, yeah, it was devastating. Um, and also to be a physician and be that sick, being on the other side, I'm like, okay, I now know what sepsis feels like. Um, I had anaphylaxis to vancomycin. Oh, I know now know what anaphylaxis can feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really ever want to feel any of that ever again. But my friend Anne, I was super sick um, and still trying to power through everything. And I had equipment and medicine everywhere in my bedroom. And talk about a death trap for a kid. So we would just like lock my bedroom door so that nobody could go in there. But I had an, an IV pole and fluids and medicine everywhere. And she came over and she sat on the floor and she put together bags, Ziploc bags for every time I needed my IV uh, medicine, a flush, saline flush, heparin flush, the medicine, the tubing. And she That's amazing. That's amazing. That hands down helped me so much because in my stupor, there were days when I couldn't even remember what day of the week it was, what I was doing. And I had these bags. I just knew when my alarm went off because I set my alarm on my phone, I had to get a bag and give myself the antibiotics. And uh, my mom, of course, also, she was a wonderful nurse and she didn't even know. She has no training, but she was a wonderful nurse as well. But yes, Anne was amazing. And people like that, you're just dropping by and helping out and taking my kids and bringing us food and always asking what they can do. It was just the community is so wonderful. When you've been going through radiation, so you just finished radiation, which is a huge deal. I don't think a lot of, I think a lot of women can wrap their heads around, okay, this is what chemo is. This is what surgery is. But radiation kind of feels like this black bear we don't really know much or talk much about. What, no. what was it like going through that process? Well, even as a physician, I think I walked through the radiation room once or twice, but, you know, never was really that super interested. So it didn't really stay with me. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of fear, but I just didn't, it's everything about cancer is the unknown. Like Mm -hmm. what is going to happen to me? Um, That was the hardest part. And it still is. That's the hardest part for me is what is my future? What is the unknown? But I remember the very first day you get the same treatment team for five weeks. And then the last week, my boost week, I had to go to a different room 
because the machine was um, faster or more powerful. So I got a different team for that last week. But the first day, this really nice um, man comes in and he looks at me. He's like, are you ready? And I just started crying. (laughs) No, nobody's ready for that. (laughs) And he's like, "Uh, it says on here you're a doctor. I'm like, yeah. You know, and, and he was like, oh, uh, uh, I don't. And he, and he came back with like a chem wipe, which is like a huge gigantic tissue. That's like the size of, you know, uh, a large pizza. And, <laughs> you know, they use them in the laboratory and he's like, here, here, have a tissue. And he's like, I just don't know what to do when, 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 when you cry. And, uh, he was just the nicest guy though. And he explained everything to me and he put up with me asking all kinds of questions. Cause of course I'm curious, I'm in the medical field and they're writing all over me with markers and these big contraptions are coming over me and they switch out the equipment all the time. So I would ask, you know, what's that for? Oh, you know, what are you doing with that? What's that called? What's that made out of? And I don't think they're used to that. So they liked it because they were like teaching me about their field. And I even learned like that there's something called a dosiometer that doses Ooh. the radiation. Who knew? Well, that sounds and, fancy. I know. And so these are the people who design the radiation that the patients get. And then the the physicians work with the dosiometers to make sure that they don't radiate my heart and my lungs and my trachea, my throat. So they try, they work together as a team. And then the radiation therapists are the ones who actually give you the the radiation. And they take multiple x-rays throughout the whole process to make sure your body's lined up so they're not radiating the wrong parts. So the radiation therapists are very important, (laughs) Um, but the team was amazing. They made me feel wonderful. But yeah, radiation was one of those things I just knew nothing about. And I thought for a second I was going to get away with, you know, this this pleasant experience where I just lay on the table and talk about it. And then I was warned that it starts to, you know, as you go through the treatment, it starts to add up and it's cumulative. Sure enough, about week three to week four, um, I started feeling the burn in my armpit and the burn in my chest. And then these last couple of weeks, it still continues for a couple of weeks after radiation. So um, I posted pictures. Yeah. About They're the burn. powerful. They're pretty powerful looking like real burns on your skin. Yeah. And it hurts, but, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm happy to be alive and I'm happy that there is treatment for this and I'm hoping that it does what it's supposed to do. And um, if that means it has to burn off all the layers, then burn off all the layers it was, it was scary. I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen to me. You hear a lot of numbers. Um, I tried to block them all out of my memory and just say, I'm living each day as positive and as meaningful and as healthy as I can. Um, and it's hard because I think I wasn't in a very healthy place before I was being mom, doctor, surgeon, friend, teacher, wife, which wife should be way up there. Sorry, wife first, mother. But um, you're doing all the things. Doing all the things. And, you know, I, like I said, I was worried about making milk. I was worried about operating, taking good care of my, I take care of my patients. Like they're my mother, my sister, my aunt, like, you know, this, they're like my family. Um, and so it's draining and I wasn't taking care of myself. I was eating not the best foods. I wasn't having time to exercise or take care of myself. And this has really afforded me the time to look back and go, okay, that's not going to happen again. And nobody should have to sacrifice their health for a career. So um, one of the best things I've ever heard is that we need to take time throughout the day for ourselves. And at least if even if it's in 10, 20, 30 minute increments, 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 you need to take time for yourself. And what does that look like? 10 minutes in the morning before people wake up, 
having some time to yourself, meditating, just clearing your mind. Think of the three things that you're most thankful for, filling your mind with happy, positive things right off the bat. Don't jump out of bed and start getting ready. Try to set your alarm a little bit early and just lay there and think about all the positive things in your life so you can be thankful for in gratitude. Getting out of bed, then going. Um, but at lunchtime, trying to get away for 10 minutes just to be by yourself. I have not done that ever. I've always been going, going, going and talking yeah. and moving and working and, and doing. Working and, you know, and so um, taking more time for myself. And in the evenings, at night now, I take time after the babies go to bed. I sit by myself in the bed. I take some time. I blog. I clear my mind. I meditate. I turn all the lights off. I think about things, life, what I want to envision. Um so number one is taking time for myself. Um, and I wasn't that healthy before and I'm trying to get back there. You know, so that's, you know, that's hard. But doing all the things that you can to be happy inside. And if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. Yeah, I, I love this message so much. I have a prior episode called The Contingent Life. And I really talk about how in medicine, I feel like, there's so much emphasis on achieving that we keep putting ourselves on the back burner. And I'll do this once this has happened or I'll focus on me later. I just need to get past this. And we do it as moms too. I just got to get past breastfeeding and then I'll start working out or eating better. I just got to get past, get them into school. We keep putting ourselves on hold until we've achieved these semi-arbitrary milestones because there's always something else to achieve or something else to do. And I love that this really terrible experience, however it's been, has made you sit back and say, why am I living this way, right? right. Yeah. Life is too short to be doing it like this. Absolutely. And it goes back to when I was 18 years old and said I wanted to be a health, woman's health care provider or advocate for women because now I still, in my role as a patient, um, feel invigorated to do that, which is why I've shared my story. Um, at first, I was pretty quiet about it. And I thought, you know what, this is not me. This is not who I am. Um, and it's yes, not- you are not quiet. So <laughs> good, um, I need to be the authentic person that I am. And that is share my story, talk about it, um, help raise awareness, tell people to check your boobs, tell people to check your vaginas, check everything about your, know your body. And if you don't like what one person has to say about it, go to somebody else because there are people willing to listen and help everywhere. What do you think about, because you were diagnosed before age 40, which is the normal time to get screened and start mammograms. What, what's your recommendation to women as they're going through this to try to avoid getting to a more advanced stage or to be aware of their breasts? What are you telling women right now? I think the most important thing you and I, and all of the physicians and healthcare providers who take care of women do is to spread awareness of our bodies in general you know know what a normal know what your normal breast tissue feels like from an early age and doing um checkups and feeling them on yourself and knowing when there's an abnormal lump or bump that you should get checked out um same thing down same thing down below the belt we tell our patients all the time i mean take a mirror look something doesn't feel right doesn't look like you have a bump or a lump or your bleeding is not right those are all things to go see somebody about um, and taking the time to care for yourself and make sure that what you're feeling is, is indeed normal. And perhaps it's not. And don't you think, advoc- don't be afraid to advocate for yourself just because, oh, well, you're 37 and you're breastfeeding. It's probably fine. Right. It's 
it's not ever wrong to say, you know what, I want to check it out further. Because if your worst case scenario is you get a test and it was normal and then you don't have cancer and you feel better, great. But if it goes the other way, at least you kind of have gotten that diagnosis before it possibly is too late or later. Absolutely. And I think that we now know there is a lot of environmental pollutants and chemicals and... um, you know, they took BPA off the market because it was causing breast form breast formation in babies and baby bottles. And unfortunately, BPA is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many harmful chemicals that we are ingesting in all the time. Plastics, food, time. food packaging, food processing for you know, special products and pesticides. There's so much. All of it. Our drinking water, everything. So I think that we all have to be aware now. It's not a question. We shouldn't question if there's something feels abnormal or you don't, this wasn't there before, or my skin looks a little different. I don't think anybody should question the fact that you want to get checked out. Um, That's the way we have to live our lives right now. And hopefully as time goes on, we'll have more regulations, especially for beauty and and, um, self-care products. There's no regulation. You know, and same thing with vitamins and supplements. There's no regulation. We don't know really what's in this stuff. And even when it does say it, sometimes if you're not educated, you don't know that methylparabens or parabens are bad for you. Right. We just presume because that somebody's looking over things and that it's all okay, but that's really not the world we live in. And I say this all the time for fertility, that these environmental chemicals and pollutants and toxins and things that we've been putting up with are having an impact and women are running out of eggs, getting cancer early, we're seeing side effects because our endocrine organs, our reproductive organs are highly susceptible to changes and to these compounds. And so be aware of what you're exposing yourself to and control what you can control. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I try not to be an alarmist. Um, I'm trying to be an advocate, but um, I think that, you know, there's going to be more and more evidence and I don't think it's going to be disputed that, that the chemicals that we're using, you know, why isn't all of our food organic? I mean, I get it. It's hard. It's expensive, but really, but if that's what food was. And that was the standard. That's exactly. what it would be. Exactly. And you know, I went to an American College of OBGYNs meeting when I was pregnant, actually, with my first baby. And I was very early on. And it was kind of an awakening um, sitting in this meeting. And the meeting's topic that morning session was on environmental pollutants and um, and went through evidence where families had been put on an organic diet for six months and their blood was tested before and after. And literally was full of harmful chemicals. And after they went on an organic diet... It, the levels went to zero and then they went back on their normal diets again. And then all those chemicals came back in their system. And so it's not a mystery that this is happening, but it's, you know, we have to change if we, we have to demand safer foods. We have to demand safer products. We have to stop buying the stuff that's not safe or not proven. Um, right. I, purchase power is one of your most powerful tools when it comes to industry. Absolutely. I mean, my baby got fed out of glass bottles. Um, that was one thing I felt I could do for her. Uh, this was even before both of them, even before I had cancer. Um, and a lot of my friends joke and say, well, you know, why should we worry so much? You're the one with cancer and you did all this stuff. And I said, well, you know, maybe I, maybe I pushed Not it when out. when you were a kid. Yeah. And other things. That... Or yes. And our generation, we ate microwave dinners. Oh yeah. You know? 
out of plastic. Burn, put it in the microwave. Now we know, don't put plastic in the microwave. We didn't know that when no, we were that was standard. We like to, would choose a plastic plate on purpose to put it in oh, the microwave. Yeah. And I love the little brownie that got cooked in the microwave dinner. <laughs> I know. Right? So, I, mean, um, I think, you know, I could sit here and talk to you all day, Meadow, but I want to ask, you know, one is what is kind of the lasting message you want to give women who are listening to this? And two, where can everybody find you? Where is your social handles? Where is your blog? How can people follow you and follow your story? Absolutely. So um, my lasting message to you is to make smart choices and educate yourself and know your body. So number one is look at the products you're putting in your body, on, your, on yourself, in your food, in your refrigerator, for your family. Educate yourself so that you don't say, I didn't know. And know what your body is supposed to feel like, look like. Can you do a Kegel? Those are two very important lessons um, and choose better products. I'm starting to now seek out, you know, more organic products to put on my body as well and started using uh, California baby, which is a fantastic product that um, my kids have been using for shampoo and wash, but there's lots of products like that, but finding products that you like that are safe and organic and have um, messages that you want to stand by. Uh, same thing as Beauty Counter is another makeup uh, that I found that I really like. And, um, and and buying products that you feel comfortable, it's not going to give you cancer or progress your cancer. That's number one. Um, I'm drinking out of, you know, my kids drink out of clean canteen mm-hmm. and glass water bottles, things like that. Second thing is knowing your body. So do an exam. If you don't know, take a mirror, get an anatomy book. Go to your doctors, have them explain it to you, get an anatomy lesson. We're all here to help and share. We love Yeah, we love teaching you. We love teaching you. Um, and then, you know, the third, the third message is just live life like you want to. Be authentic. You know, do things that are meaningful and purposeful and um, surround yourself with positivity because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters is who you love and being loved. That's it. Oh, I love that so much. And I think it's so true and so important for us to hear because we just get surrounded in the day-to-day hustle and all the goals we're trying to do and all the things we're trying to be. And sometimes we forget to just cherish all the small moments or make decisions that are really in line with who we are and who we want to be and the legacy we want to leave with our family, with our time here that we have. Absolutely. Um, where to find me. So if you want to follow me or contact me, you can find me on all the social media avenues. Number one, Twitter. My handle is at Meadow Good. Number two, Instagram, which is Good. You can find me on Facebook, Meadow Good. You can find me on Amazon, which is www.amazon.com backslash shop backslash Meadow Good. You can find my website on Beauty Counter and um, I'm not doing it to make any money either. I'm just trying to help spread helpful, healthy tips and help women make good choices so they can have good health. And um, hopefully that's where I'm headed as well. So I'm, I'm all over. Uh, I love social media. I've been a big advocate for social media for 
But forever, before I even had a Facebook account, Meadow was giving talks about why physicians need to be on social media. So that's like 10 years ago. You were a pioneer in the social media. <laughs> and then I slacked off for a while. So now you've reinvigorated yeah. that passion of mine. Um, it really is, though, an amazing tool to reach out to each other because I have this connection with you now that I may have not had. Yeah. Always in my brain, but never in, in person. Um, so that closes that connection and also with our patients and the people who we, the whole reason we got into this industry was to help people. So now we can touch their lives more in an intimate way in a closer way in communicating with them directly. I see that uh, all the time, especially in our two fields where you said we talk about sex, we talk about stigmatized topics and things that are hard to bring up that we are asking women to come into our office and be really vulnerable with us. And if we are just a person that they don't know that is super hard. And so by sharing a part of ourselves, we are opening the door up and so they can feel more comfortable with who we are and trust, restore trust in the medical community again. Absolutely. I think that every single physician should be on social media in some capacity because if they're not controlling what's on the internet about themselves, then they might be disappointed at what they see. I would say some, but you have an online presence. The question is who is controlling it? Who's I say that all it? the time, right? Is it you or somebody else? Exactly. And I'm giving a talk in Dallas um, in December about this. And my talk is called Social Media is Your Superpower. Because I feel like every physician is a hero, a hero to somebody. We're helping to take care. Either we're, you know, as an oncologist, helping to cure cancer. Um, as a um, as a REI, reproductive endocrinologist, you're giving people life. You're giving them babies, obstetrician, gynecologist, you name it. Every single field, we f- those patients feel like you're their hero. Um, and so we have a superpower, which is social media and that social media can tell people about what you do, why you do it, who you are. It can portray everything you want to communicate to your patient in the exam room and they will love that. They will feel like they're, they love it. They love it. And so that's all. I think social media is our superpowers for sure. I love the name of that talk. I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for taking the time out of your life to share your story. I think it's going to impact more people than you know. And I love you. And I'm so proud of you for being so brave during all of this, for all that you do, but just for inspiring all of us to really live that authentic life that we really want to. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Crawford. I want to thank you 
because you've touched so many lives through as a woman, your podcasts and on social media and, um, from all the Parkland graduates, we're all super proud of you. And, um, and, and just as a, as a, as a fellow woman, mother physician, I'm, I'm very proud of you. And I I think what you're doing is, is amazing for us and for the public. And I congratulate you at an amazing job. You've done, you've done a wonderful job. Oh, you are too sweet. Thank you so much. Friends, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found it really as impactful as I have just following Meadow's journey, knowing her personally and how amazing she is and her bravery and taking the time to share this with all of us. I'm also going to thank you for every time you support, listen to the As A Woman podcasts. I know this episode is longer than most. We just had a lot to say, but I love your ideas for future episodes. I love every rate, review, and share. So thank you so much for that. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD or the blog NatalieCrawfordMD.com. And just a huge, ginormous thank you. Remember the quote that Meadow said, and she said, nobody should have to sacrifice their health for a career. And let's remember that. <laughs>